0: Good morning. What <laughs> a blessing to be here. I you was know, just uh, listening to worship and, and praising the Lord and just reminded of, of uh, how many people it takes to, to do ministry. And just kind of thinking of the, the folks that, that sing here on a regular basis. If you ever have an opportunity to just express appreciation to them, I'm sure they would appreciate knowing that they put a lot of time and practice into their efforts here. And, and I know that we reap the benefits on a Sunday morning when we worship together. And so just want to encourage you to consider that as well. Just kind of blessed here, just thinking of the many people that, that give of themselves freely here in the church, and I'm really blessed by that. This morning, um, I want to focus on a, a scripture passage um, that, that the Lord has been putting on my heart recently in regard to to using the weapons of our warfare. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you have this this passage there in your bulletin. Um, Verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When you look at this scripture passage, one of the things that you realize is that this passage talks about about warfare, about battle. Um, there's there's um, a language in here that causes us to consider the fact that we are in a in a war. And I don't know if you, you think about it enough, but, but I was kind of reminded of that this week. Uh, when we dealt with um, this funeral that we just had here, just kind of thinking of the battles that go on in our mind and cause us to, to, um, to make decisions in our lives, sometimes tragic decisions. And, and it reminds me that, that we're weak people. But God has given us weapons, God has given us tools to be overcomers in our life and to to fight this war, this battle. And if you look at the language of this text, let's just look at some of this. It says that we're waging war. Do you ever think about that in in your Christian life that you're waging war? It says here that we're waging war. And then in verse 4 it says, talks about the weapons of our warfare. So when we think about weapons, maybe, maybe you think about a helmet. Maybe you think about um, you know, guns and swords and that kind of thing. Um, but he says there's weapons of our warfare. And they are capable to destroy strongholds. They're weapons of divine power. So this is different than the weapons that the world uses, right? But... This is a really incredible thought that as a Christian believer who walks the face of the earth as a pilgrim we have weapons at our disposal. But our problem is we don't often make use of those weapons. And so so what I want to to share again as a reminder here this morning is that that God has equipped us. That God has given us the the possibility to use weapons. Our, Our problem is that we don't often wield them properly, or we don't use them. Or, or we take a worldly mindset um, and take that approach rather than using what God has given us. In the, the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, it kind of breaks it down, and it says this, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. So the question you ask yourself is, well, how do humans wage war? Well, often it's, it's payback, it's a, as a result of loss, um, you know, sometimes it's through grief, but, but sometimes we, we pick up weapons, right? And sometimes we throw stones and sometimes the things that we do are ungodly, right? So he says we don't wage war as humans do. Humans wage war, they have their own ideology, their own methods of doing things, but the Christian does things different. He says, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. So, so the weapons that we, we have at our disposal are mighty weapons. They're much superior to the worldly weapons. And with these weapons, we can knock down strongholds. And the strongholds that come through human reasoning. He says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And how often haven't we realized that in our Christian life that certain mannerisms, lifestyles, words that come out of our hearts um, actually disrupt the kingdom of God, actually dist- uh, you know, keep people from coming to faith. They, they become um, an obstacle. So he says we destroy those things and we capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So you can't help but look at the Scripture passage and realize we're in a conflict. We're in a battle. And yet we can choose each day how we're going to use those weapons. And I want to just cover this morning here, I want to just cover three, three weapons that, that we have at our disposal, and how we can wield them effectively. And the first one I'd like us to consider is the, the weapon of transparency. Maybe maybe that's not one that would come to your mind when you think about a, a spiritual biblical weapon. Um, but I just think that this is something that as a church we need to learn even more um, and, and discover the power in brokenness, openness, and transparency. Honest. Honesty. In, uh, in an article um, in the Eternity magazine, there's a statement that I was really blessed reading. And he says, the, the guy that wrote it says this, he says, There is a potency and a wholesomeness in living life transparently rather than endlessly erecting poses and postures in fraudulent pieties. So to to maybe simplify that and break it down a little bit, he says this, there's potency, there's power, and there's wholesomeness, there's a beauty in living life transparently, in living life like, like an open book for people to read. So there's power in that, he says. And he, he says, rather than the opposite, which is erecting poses. You know, sometimes we, we do this. Right? We, we have this, this, this plastic personality that we somehow paste on. And when people confront us and talk to us about something, we're like, yeah, there's nothing going on. I'm just doing well. And, and we have this pious attitude, this, this holier-than-thou attitude, this religious attitude that, that we sometimes cloak ourselves with, and that's what we want other people to see, that we're this well-put-together person who never has any problems, and, and it becomes fraudulent. It's a posture, like he says here. And he says, what is, what is refreshing and powerful is a life that is lived transparently. And, and, and so when we think about this weapon that we can wield of transparency, it's incredibly powerful. And I think when you encounter it, it changes you. Ray, Ray Steadman, who has now uh, passed away a number of years ago, but has, uh, you know, has written a lot of different things on, on, on these topics. He says this, and I really like what he says. I want to read it to you. He says, this modern world of ours is generously supplied with pitchmen and con artists and those who have access to grind. He says, these are enthusiastically and persistently using the big lie on us. Hence, it is an arresting and refreshing experience to meet a person or a group that is authentic and transparently open. So he's saying that when you encounter someone who's transparent, it's refreshing. How often haven't you met someone that that isn't scared to show you their warts and all their hidden defects right and and yet you still see within them a love for Jesus. yet despite of all that you, you know these people know that that unless Jesus comes and rescues they're They have problems. They have flaws. So he goes on in his article there and he says, that is what every Christian ought to be. They ought to be real. They ought to be open and transparent. And he says, in every Christian group. he says, I was distressed this week to learn of an evangelical church that is teaching its people that they have the right to privacy in their lives. No Christian, he says, has the right to a private life. Our lives are to be lived openly before all men, transparent, a spectacle unto all the world. We have no private lives, and we must not expect to have. This is basically and fundamentally wrong. Christians are to be demonstrations of the truth. We're supposed to be able to be out there so that people can relate to us, can can understand our experiences, can understand that, yes, we mess up, but on the other side of our mess up, there's there's repentance there's a return to Christ and there's redemption i mean over and over again jesus tried to show this when he walked the earth that 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 he was a god of redemption and you know perhaps no clearer than in the story of the woman that was caught in adultery where 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 they even the religious leaders came and condemned her and jesus says neither do i condemn thee go and sin no more you know jesus demonstrated over and over again that he was a a God of redemption and yet somehow sometimes in our pious mindset we, we come to this thought that, that we have to um, give off this facade this, this picture that we're something other than that we really are and I, I, I know that the longer I experience the Christian journey I am much more encouraged when I observe somebody that's authentic. That's real. I think of men like Peter in scripture. I know that we often maybe have characters that we identify with and Peter was one of those. When he first encountered Jesus um, and, and his boat was filled with these fish and he realized that he was in front of a superior being a um, one like Jesus. He he, he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You know, he, he recognized who he was in the sight of the Lord. And then, as we observe Peter's life in the New Testament, we, we know that he failed many times. You know, in, in, in particular, we, we think probably of how he, he, he made this vow to Jesus that though everyone else would forsake him, he would not. He would stand true to Jesus. And, and we know that that didn't happen. In fact, Jesus predicted it wouldn't happen. And, and accurately, Peter denies Jesus three times. And so, as we think about Peter's life, though, there's probably moments like that that creep into our mind and we're like, you know, how many times haven't I failed Jesus? How many times haven't I tripped up? How many times haven't I chosen the wrong way? And so... As you go to John chapter 21, and you see this exchange where Jesus comes to Peter. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you, Lord. He says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter again confirms his love for the Lord. And then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Scripture tells us that Peter's grieved at this point. And, and then he says this to Jesus. He says, Lord, you know everything. I'm an open book. You know what happened when they came to arrest you. Everyone fled. I was one of them. You know what happened in the trial when they accused you and they accused me of being a part of you and I denied you three times. And he's he he finally comes to this place in his life where he says, Lord, you know everything about me. You know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and I believe Jesus wanted Peter to get to this place of transparency. And, and as he gets to this place of transparency, he he then gives Peter his commission, go and feed my sheep. And so when I think about being effective in the kingdom of God, I think it's incredibly important for us to to realize that, that our weapon is different than the world's weapon. Remember, the, the world says this, fake it till you make it. You ever hear that? Fake it till you make it. In other words, if you don't understand what's going on, just pretend. Just put on this image that says that you know what you're doing. And, and that's often the philosophy that we encounter. But, but in, in the Christian world, we're told to be an open book. To be transparent. To fight with a different weapon. And as we do that, we overcome divine or, or these great strongholds. We destroy these strongholds and we use divine power to do that. Think of the, the, the song that Matthew West has written called Truth Be Told. And in a song he says this. He says, lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask how you're doing... Just smile and tell them, never better. Lie number two, he says, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. And he says, truth be told, the truth is rarely told. I say I'm fine, yeah I'm fine, oh I'm fine, hey I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control. But it's not and you know it. We don't fool anybody, right? He says, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. You know, when when we try to appear to be something to other people that we are not the fact of the matter is we already all know it. We already know that we're broken people. We already know that we're flawed people. We already know that, that what we see on Sunday mornings is not always what we see during the week. We already know that what we see on Instagram or Facebook or any other social media, that, that, that that's the good moments. Those are the shiny moments of our lives. We don't post. We don't proclaim. We don't advertise the, the messes and the flaws in our lives. We, we don't want people to see them, we don't want people to see our brokenness and i and I think sadly sometimes um some of the messes that we're dealing with and whether it's an addiction to something or whether it's it's marital issues, we keep them all locked up inside because we think somehow I'm not supposed to open up and we don't realize that true victory is found in brokenness and openness. This song that he he has written here. Um, reminds me of Proverbs 28, verse 13. And it says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. It's not fake it till you make it. Whoever conceals his transgressions, you keep them locked up inside, you won't prosper. And, and, And you know what? Those of you who are mature already know that. Especially those of you who have lived a longer life you already know that the longer you keep things inside and hidden away from people, it, it doesn't lead to success. It doesn't bless you. It doesn't help you. In fact, what, you know what it does? It drives you to isolation. And when it drives you to isolation, you know, sometimes we use the excuse and, and we, we stay stuck in our addictions and we use the excuse. Sometimes we say... That we're introverted, and I know that there are introverted people. So I, I, I want to be careful how I say that. But sometimes we get so, so so comfortable in our isolation, that we make excuses so that we can um, stay immersed in our addictions. And when we do that, we don't confess our sins to one another, like James five sixteen talks about. We don't find healing. Because we're keeping everything locked up tight inside. We're not, we're not exposing ourselves and opening ourselves up where we can truly find help. And sometimes I wonder if it's that that eventually leads people to, to making disastrous decisions in their life. Maybe even taking their own life. Maybe getting to a state of depression where you feel like there's no help for you. Where you feel like there's no way of escape. You've got to ask yourself sometimes, is, is my fear of being exposed so important to me that eventually it will destroy me, my family, my marriage, my children, the people that care about me the most? And you know, all around us, in the meantime, we have people just like us that are going through the same things that we are going through. And would be very glad to hear you and to allow you to pour your heart out and pray for you. You know, none of us are, are any better than anybody else. The, the, the difference that some of us have made is that we've recognized the part Jesus plays in our lives. We recognize that if, that, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, I, I hope that even for you folks, as you think about our church leadership here, I hope you never think of us over here and you over here. We're, we're all at the same level. Every single one of us here. We all are in desperate need of our Savior to cleanse us and to restore us. The one who confesses and forsakes, according to Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, will obtain mercy. So we wield a powerful weapon When we, when we are broken and open and honest. We experience great freedom when we bring our addictions into the light rather than trying to cover them up. Someone has said this, a hypocrite is someone who spends their life pretending to be more righteous than they are. A Christian is someone who knows they have no righteousness of their own, but whose righteousness is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's the difference. Someone who looks inside and says, you know, it's as ugly inside my heart as anybody else. But I invited Jesus in. I couldn't do it myself. Jesus came in and he started cleaning things up. And I am who I am today as a result of what he has done in my heart. So we don't take glory. We don't, we can't, there's nothing we can say we ha- have done out of our own selves. Sometimes we, and we need to realize, like, like Spurgeon did, the, the English preacher from the 1800s who said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Think of that. If any man thinks ill of you, maybe somebody slanders you. Maybe somebody throws you under the mud and slings you with mud. Don't think ill of him. You're actually probably worse than he thinks you are. You know, that's an interesting thought, and I'd like you to consider that. You know, there's something incredibly freeing about not needing to present to somebody an image that you're not. It's incredibly freeing to know that you're an open book. There's great power in that. And I, I think often of the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Which man went home justified? The one that humbled himself before the Lord, right? The one that, that exposed himself. Said, man, you know, I'm just a sinner. I'm, I wish I could be a better man. I'm, I'm not who I am. Who, who I wish I to, uh, could be. Instead of this man who, who looked condescendingly down on this other guy and said, man, I'm so much better than that guy. So, wield this weapon of transparency. It's different than what human reasoning would say. It's not a carnal weapon or a worldly weapon. The worldly weapon is is put on a facade. Fake it till you make it. The Christian says, you know what? Here I am. Here I am. You you see me. You you see everything about me. Um, And if you don't, let me have a conversation with you and I'll let you know that That I'm a person with flaws, with failures, with struggles. I don't have it all put together. But I serve a Jesus who is able to clean me up. There's a difference there. That's the weapon that God has given us in the area of transparency. Um, I want to just talk briefly about two other ones. I won't uh, spend quite as much time there. But there's another weapon that I, I feel like um, is also contrary to a worldly weapon and it 's the weapon of true love and I, and I think sometimes uh, you know there 's an imitation of love in our world today um, you know people people use the word love very loosely um, you know I, I love my dog or I, I love my pizza or things like that we We use those terms re- you know quite loosely um, and, and, and in our world, love is often associated with, with erotic love or, or lust or or romance and things like that. Um, even even maybe something else we see when we think about love today. You know, uh, it doesn't take too long before you drive by a um, you know maybe a pride associated event or something maybe connected to the LGBT agenda, um, and, and you see this. Phrase, love wins. You know, in many ways, what they're really saying is, I want affirmation and acceptance. If you accept me, that's what love is. And yet, Scripture says that when we wield this weapon of love, it looks different than what the world would consider to be love. And and Alistair Begg, um, in one of his sermons, um, said this, and I really liked his thought. He said that, that people um, often come to us maybe with, with a homosexual mindset and they come to the Christian and they say, you as Christians hate us. Or they, they try to coerce Christians to affirm their lifestyle. And Alistair Bike says, well, we don't just have two options, and I really appreciated how he put that. We're, we, do, we don't just hate, and we cannot affirm, he says. There's another option, and it's in the Word of God. And it's an option that's called love. And it's picking up this weapon of love in loving somebody's soul more than their lifestyle. Loving somebody's soul more than affirming their lifestyle, loving them enough to care about their soul and exposing their action to the truth of the Word of God. And in, in 1 Corinthians 13, this whole chapter on love, there's a statement in there that says that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And, and we know that in our world today, you know, love is viewed at, as, as affirmation. But according to the Bible, love cannot affirm sin. It can't rejoice at wrongdoing. It can only rejoice in the truth. Which means that when we live a life that's contrary to the Word of God, true love speaks into our lives. And as we wield this weapon of love effectively, people can see our heart and can understand, you know what, you don't hate me, I know you don't hate me. But neither do you affirm me. You, you love me enough to speak the truth to me. I mean, how, how often do we, are, are we accused of loving someone enough to speak the truth to them even when it hurts? I mean, we ought to do this. If we see our husband or our wife or our child or, or a brother or sister heading towards sin, shouldn't we love them enough to warn them? of of the destructive path in front of them. I mean, how hateful isn't it if we see somebody falling headlong into destruction and we don't warn them. I mean, how hateful wouldn't it be if you had just narrowly avoided driving down a cliff or steep embankment while you're driving down the road because you know the road's out in front of you and you turned around and you see some, another car barreling down, and you don't stop him. And he's, he's, he's driving, and he's about to go down this cliff, and you just wave at him as he drives by. How, how hateful wouldn't that be? You know he's going to die. Well, when we, we wield this weapon of love, we're willing to put ourselves in the way. We're willing to say, you know what? Man, I can't. I, I can't just go with what you're doing. I can't affirm you. There's a greater degree of love here. People ought to see that in our lives as believers. This degree of love. Jude chapter 1, verse 23. Really good verse. There's only one chapter in Jude. Verse 23 says this. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, he says, show mercy with fear hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh you know when i look at this passage it, it reminds me of some of these these people that have fallen for the lies of society whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism or you know some of these things that all of us in our common sense even even in our own sanity we know the destruction these things are causing we know how utterly um, distasteful and, and what's going to happen down the road? We already know that that it's going to lead to a life of misery and, and so Jude says hey you hate this garment that is even stained by the flesh, you, you know how filthy it is, how wrong it is and how vile it is but you love the person enough to snatch them before they fall into the flames you care enough about them to, to get in their face about it and maybe they might even hate you in the beginning, they might, they, it might bother them that you're confronting and getting in the way of their sinful lifestyle, but who are they going to go to when they reach the end of the road? They're going to think back, you know, there was a man, there was a woman who spoke to me a while ago, and they cared enough about me to confront me. You know, when people hit the end of the road, they're not going to go to those who affirm their lifestyle. They're going to go to those who were courageous enough to say there's a better way. So this is a weapon that we can effectively wield. And it's not the way the world would wield it. But it has divine power. It's a weapon so filled with love that you can't help but change when you see that kind of love. I want to look at one more yet today. And it's the, the weapon of true forgiveness. Um, when, when we think about true forgiveness, we have to lay a foundation of what forgiveness looks like. And I know of no other foundation than to go to, to the Bible and to understand what forgiveness looks like from God's perspective. In Psalm chapter 103, Verse 10, speaking of God the Father, it says, He, meaning God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. So when you think about forgiveness, and using this weapon of forgiveness effectively in our life you can only do it as you know as you as you understand the forgiveness forgiving nature of god you know as he contemplates his children it says when he forgives us he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west they are so far removed that they cannot even connect God does not repay us, he says, according to how our sins deserve. You know, humanly, when somebody messes us up or gets in our way, we, we want to repay them according to how they deserve, right? God doesn't do that. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers a multitude of sins. When Jesus was on the cross giving his life for our redemption, while he was on the cross, the soldiers were at the same time casting lots for his clothes. You ever just stopped and kind of clued in and thought, how utterly callous. Where's the love? Where's the compassion? Where's the feeling of this man who's hanging on the cross? And, and here is the creator of the universe. Colossians tells us that, that in, in him all the fullness of God dwelt. And here he was hanging on the cross. And he looks upon his people. And these people that are mocking and ridiculing him. You know, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. And he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He he wielded this weapon of forgiveness very effectively. You know, the, the world would have said, hey, if you saved others, why don't you come down from the cross and we'll believe in you, like the Pharisees did, religious leaders. Or we would have said, well, just call your 12 legions of angels to come rescue you. But he demonstrated something totally contrary to the world. And that's what the weapons of our war- warfare are, like Paul is talking about. They're, they're a different way of thinking. We, we must think of our weapons from a Christian perspective. We must recognize that it's contrary to our own human reasoning. And Jesus does that. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And remember, there was an unbeliever that day, a centurion standing at the foot of the cross. And he looks up at Jesus and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Why do you think he said that? You know, was it because the veil in the temple was torn in two? Was it because of the earthquake or the darkness? Or was it the effective wielding of a forgiving sword? I don't know what it was that touched the centurion that day. But something impacted him mightily. In the Colossians, we read this about about Jesus' crucifixion. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. Now, if you were to look at that from a worldly perspective, you would say, Yeah, but where were the twelve legions of angels? Where where were you know this Saviour who raised that? What you know, why didn't he come down? He could have come down from the cross and saved himself. And yet he he takes the way of surrender and he yields up his ghost, his his spirit to the Lord. And he forgives these people. And Colossians says, as a result, he disarmed. He won a great victory. And he put these rulers to an open shame as a result of his forgiving weapon. That's incredible. And I, I think that ought to motivate us in our day today. And I, I've often thought about this too. If, if in our Christian world today, if we wielded the weapon of forgiveness what, what would change in our world? How many marriages wouldn't be on better ground today? How many marriages wouldn't have been saved if a husband or a wife would look at each other and practice what Jesus said to his disciples when they said, well, how, how many times, or Peter, when he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? And up to 70 times? Seven? Or seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times, seven. Seven? What if, what if we took that weapon of forgiveness and we brought that into our marriages and into our relationships and into our friendships? You know, our world philosophy has, has crept into our ideology in the church and I kid you not, you know what you're hearing today from, from Christian authors and speakers all over our world today? They're saying, You know, if it's two offenses or three offenses, write that person off as a toxic person. And I'm not saying that there aren't sometimes toxic relationships. But man, what happened to 70 times 7? You know, I I, I think sometimes we have this whole thing upside down. And I'm sad to see that the Christian church has taken up the weapons of the world in far too many places and and has not taken what Jesus so clearly demonstrated to us here in in, in his word. Forgiveness changes lives. Forgiveness extinguishes hatred. When the world comes face to face with the weapons of love and forgiveness the the wind just goes out of their sails they don't know how to handle it they don't know what to do with it it's foreign doesn't make sense when you commit a wrong to somebody and they extend their hand to you and say i forgive you it changes your destiny all the all the bitterness fades away into the background all the hatred is gone it's a neutralizer. Let me close with a story. Corrie Ten Boom and her family resisted the Nazis in World War II in the 1930s and into the 40s. They, they hid Jews in their home. They were ultimately discovered by, by the Third Reich, They're the the Nazi government, and they were all taken to a, uh, a concentration camp. In, in the concentration camp, her entire family died as a result of mistreatment and, and, and punishment. Corey was the only one left, and she had also undergone cruel treatment at the hands of her captors. She spent the rest of her life going around and sharing her experiences. One One night, in her book, The Hiding Place, she talks about a story that happened to her in 1947, a couple of years after the war. She said she was speaking in a church in Munich, and she noticed a balding man in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. Her topic that night had been God's forgiveness. But she said her heart froze when she recognized the man. She could picture him as she'd seen him so many times, she says, in in his blue, uni- his blue Nazi uniform with a visored cap. She said, this man standing there listening to her talk was one of the cruelest of the guards in the Ravensbrook camp where her sister Corey had died, or where her sister had died, and where she had suffered um, horrible indignities. And she said, at the end of her talk, this man came up the aisle towards her. With, her, with his hand thrust out. She says, and he, he says this to her. He says, thank you for the fine message, how wonderful it is to know that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. I was reminded, so I was just listening to her story here, and I'll get back to it in a bit here. I was reminded, even uh, at times serving in the ministry here, Um, And you guys have encountered this too. But what do you think of sometimes when you realize that an individual has spent their entire life cursing God and, and being a horrible person? And then on their deathbed, they cry out to Jesus and they get saved. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I can identify a little bit with what Corey was dealing with here. You know, you live like the devil all your life. And yet, you still have an opportunity at the end of it to cry out to God for mercy. That's that's the gospel. Jesus explained this to us when he talked about hiring the laborers in the vineyard, right? And remember, at the end of the day when he gave payment for the work those who had worked for one hour got the same payment as those who had worked for 12 hours. And you know what? You can hate it or you can embrace it and say, well, God is merciful. One day we're going to be sharing heaven with people who were murderers, people who led horrible lives, but in the end, like the thief on the cross, turned towards him and said, Lord, remember me. And you know, this must have been a little bit what she was dealing with. She said there as this man stood before her, with his hand outstretched, she said, every memory coursed through her body of what this man had done. This man said this, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It has been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did. But I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips, too, that God has forgiven me. You Just imagine the torment. She says she stood there. She says, I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. What seemed like hours probably were a mere seconds. And she says, finally, woodenly, mechanically, I stuck out my hand. Then she says this, as I did, an incredible thing happened. She says, the current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then the healing warmth, she said, seemed to, to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And in her book she says there for a long moment we grasp each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is wielding the weapon of forgiveness. What would happen in our world today? If as Christians we would wield even these three weapons that we talked about. There's many more. But if we wielded these three weapons that are at our disposal, you know what I believe? Strongholds would be destroyed. Just like 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. Strongholds would be destroyed. When people see your transparency, when they see your true love and your true forgiveness, there's no answer for it. Just surrender. It's just a yielding. It's just an acknowledging that you've come face-to-face with something more powerful than you and the world would be changed if as christians we wielded those weapons effectively let's pray father thank you for your word thank you lord for the opportunity to serve you like this father i just pray that each one here would experience a touch of you that they would understand the calling you have upon each of our lives lord and that We would go from here practicing transparency, true love, and true forgiveness. That you would be glorified and honored in our approach in taking up these weapons. In Jesus' name, amen.